Paul tells us in Romans 1, 16 through 17, that we must have a righteousness from God. That that righteousness must come not from ourselves, but from God as a gift through faith. Paul's telling us that God, in order to save us, must cover us with a righteousness from him, with an acquittal, a judgment of innocent and blameless in his courtroom. We need this righteous decree over our lives because, Paul says, of God's wrath. This wrath will reach its fullness at the final judgment when Christ brings this present age to an end at his return. But Paul tells us in Romans 1.18 that in part, this wrath from God is actually being revealed right now. It is active and it is being experienced right now. And this is what we've been asking. Why? What is this issue between us and God? And and what is this wrath revealed? But before Paul tells us about how the wrath is revealed, he's telling us why, why it's active even now. And he's told us this, that mankind from our first parents onward has suppressed the truth about God in unrighteousness. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 18, Romans 1 verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is our first and worst sin. As a human family, deep in our hearts, perhaps now we might call it our subconscious, we know there is an almighty creator. We know that nothing comes from nothing. Mankind knows from all that God has made that there is a creator of eternal power who has a divine nature. But our response is to deny this truth about him. We don't, apart from his grace and his renewing work through Christ, we don't give honor to him. We don't give him the glory and the respect and the reverence that he deserves. We do not live lives of gratefulness that's in keeping with the immensity of his worth and honor and love and his creative power giving us and sustaining in us all that we have. And not only this, in in rejecting the creator, Paul tells us we turn to the creation for our hope. We turn away from God and put our fullest hope, our most important hope, our deepest hope in the creation. That's what verse 25 puts it. We looked at this last week. We exchange the glory of God for a lie. This is why God's wrath is upon the world. God, in this reality, from the beginning of creation, has given us himself, offered himself to us. He is the most glorious being possible. And he made us to know him and to reflect in our thoughts and desires and deeds his glory. We were meant to be like him, perfect in love and perfect in wisdom and perfect in faithfulness. And in Adam, our first father, he created us to be that. There is not a greater honor or glory God could have bestowed upon created beings than to know him and reflect him because he is literally the best thing there is. He can't give us anything greater than to know him and to be like him. But Paul is explaining that human family corporately and in all of our hearts have rejected this truth about God and we have anchored our hope not in him but in creation. We have lit our desire not for him but for the things that he has made. We have committed our trust to created things whether it's in ancient times 
in the West, the explicit idolatry of statues and stones and of wood so that we can secure our hope with our own hands or whether in modern times, it's our own earthly wealth, power, intelligence, that we might be our own security. Anything to which we can say, I must have you above all. You are my hope. You are really my life. When we give that in our hearts to anything except God, we are giving to creation what only belongs to God. This is the exchange of the glory of God for a lie. And this suppression of the truth about God and the giving of our worship to creation instead of him, this is why he has wrath. This is why he has just anger at mankind. And now today we're going to consider for the first time in this series what God's wrath actually looks like. What is his response that we can actually see around us when Paul says the wrath of God is revealed right now, not at the judgment to come, but in the human family right now, God is making his wrath known. And, and listen, if, if you've never considered this before, the truths we're going to engage today may shock you. They may depress you. They may confuse you. They may repulse you. And I want to prepare your hearts for that. But God's not bringing this to us because he wants to destroy us. The whole point of why God is telling us that his wrath is active and he's revealing it is because he's not only angry at the human family, but he loves and wants to reach and wake up and draw to himself and save the human family. And so today, God wants us to see this so that we can, if we're outside of him, understand our dire predicament. And that if we're inside him, if we know him already, that we might cherish his deliverance, his solution, and be ready to share it with others. So, so starting in verse 24, I'm going to read through the rest of the passage as we look at God's wrath now revealed for our rejection of him and our turning our hearts to what he has made instead of him. Starting in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For even their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, which means a rude arrogance, a lack of respect for authority. Haughty, which means a disdain, a disgust of others, thinking yourself superior. Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
or another version has brutal. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So Paul presents as a manifestation of God's wrath, his just righteous wrath against mankind. He presents a kaleidoscope of human depravity at its worst. This list needs some qualifications. It does not mean that each of us is all of these things or that we are as deeply these things as we could be. But it is fair to say that it does mean that we are all touched by some of the sins here or sins like them. Moving from sexual immorality and homosexuality to social evils of all kinds, envy, brutality, gossip, slander, malice, it raises important questions. Why does Paul start with sexual depravity, explicitly naming homosexuality, especially in our current age? This is a question we need to deal with seriously. And then why does he only after that move to broader categories of social and ethical evil with each other in our relationships outside of sexual dynamics. We're going to explore that question in another message about homosexuality in Romans one in these passages and sexual depravity. But, but I think the fact that from the, just a, a bit of a, of a hopefully reasonable guesstimate, so to speak, informed by thinking um, is that from the beginning of creation, God's design is that society, which he covers in the second half of this list would come from sexual union, which he covers in the first half of the list that communities don't start as communities. They start as families and families don't start as families. They start as the union between a man and a woman And so that may be in the backdrop of Paul's thinking that depravity moves out from the man and the woman and the human family out into society at large. But regardless of where Paul starts, there's no one left off of this list. We're all in this picture somewhere that Paul lists. Being infected by the sin of arrogance and envy and slander doesn't make you better than being touched by the sins of homosexuality. We are all in this list and it's, it's actually our own sin that looks arrogantly at those who struggle with the sin of sexuality or sexual sins and perversities like homosexuality. And Paul isn't pulling any punches. He is calling it perversity and says, well, that's perversity, but my envy, my malice, my greed, that's just, that's just ambition and good American desires for being the best. That's not God's attitude about this. No one gets out of this list alive, spiritually. However, for the rest of this morning, I don't want to focus on the, the individual sins in this list, whether they're sexual or social. I want to focus on a central idea that should really trouble us, that weaves itself through all these verses, which you may have picked up on, but it's possible you may not have. And that is this phrase repeated three times in this passage, starting in verse 34, 24. And here it is, the phrase. Next slide, Ed, please. Thank you, brother. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. Verse 26, for this reason, are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. It's a typo. It's God gave them up. It's the same phrase in the other two verses. 
And the reason I want to focus on this phrase is because whatever the sins listed around these verses, what is most provoking here is that it is God who is said to be handing mankind, listen, it is God who is said to be handing mankind over to sin as a judgment. Do you see that here? Paul does not say, listen, this is really the heart of what I want to try to get at here. Paul does not say that God is giving man up or handing mankind over to judgment for their sins listed here. Paul says God is handing mankind over to the sins listed here in his judgment. Do you, do you see that? Paul says that God is handing mankind over to the sins that are listed here in his judgment. This is the revelation, Paul says, of God's wrath. That that God is handing us over to these sins. This is God's response to our rejection of him. Which he didn't hand us over to. We handed ourselves over to that in this chapter. He gives us up to sins against ourselves and one another for rejecting him. That's why I called it the beginning of this sermon. That's why I called our our sin of suppressing the truth about God and turning from him our first and worst sin. Because his response comes after that. And that is to hand us over to this horrible list that's in front of us. Now, I want to consider this phrase, God gave them up. And I I actually like a different translation, God handed them over. I think give up has a a bit of a connotation, it's fine. But I think the, the phrase, God handed them over, brings a little bit of clarity to what it means and what it doesn't mean. He gave them up or handed them over. It comes from the Greek word paradidomai. And this idea is used in the Old Testament, the Greek translation called the Septuagint or the LXX. You might see it in notes. The Greek translation of the Hebrew describes with this word, God's handing Israel's enemies over to defeat in battle. Deuteronomy 7.23 says, but the Lord your God will give them over to you. The Lord your God will paradidomai them over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And then we see this phrase used in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul's talking about the supremacy of love. And he says, if I hand over my body to be burned. He's using that word, paradidomai. If I give myself up over to the fire. Matthew 26, 15, when Judas decides to betray Jesus and tells them that he will hand Jesus over to them. It's the same word. Judas says, what will you give me if I paradidomai, hand him over, give him up to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. So that's the idea. It has an actual object in view. I'm going to give you over to something. It's not just I'm going to throw my hands up. It's I am going to deliver you to this thing. Jewish authorities, enemies, to fire to be burned. So some qualifications though on what this does not mean. This idea of God handing us over to sins does not mean that he is the maker of sin in our hearts. It has to mean something else. James 1 tells us that let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God himself cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. 
and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the picture here, explicit in verse 24, is that in turning away from God, there begins in the heart of man himself sinful desires and disorders, which God did not create. God did not, poof, I'm going to make sin happen in your heart. That is the natural outcome of turning away from God. When we do that, we start to engender sin. We start to cultivate desires and passions that are sinful and ungodly. That comes from us, not from God. We see this clearly in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Can we go back to verse 24, Edward? There it is, perfect, thank you. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. This means something was already stirring in the soul of man when he turned from God before God handed them over to it. God did not invent the lusts of their hearts. They're already there. God is doing something after that. So ultimately though, this tells us, think about this. There are only two options for our hearts in a universe with a God who is the personification of all goodness. There are only two options for the heart of man in a universe where God is the personification of all goodness. That God is the one in whom exists all goodness. If you will not choose him, guess what else you cannot keep? Goodness. You can't keep goodness. Not for long. Not for long. If a person, a family, a society, a culture will not choose God, they cannot keep goodness. They may not want all the awful stuff that Paul lists here in this list, but it will come eventually because that is what it means to not choose God. You are by default choosing those other things. I've been thinking about this analogy. I texted with, with Jess about this this week in our own culture. How did we get from Leave it to Beaver and the Brady Bunch and the Cosbys to Euphoria? on Netflix. And by the way, if you know about Euphoria, stop watching it, please. And I'm not going to describe it except it's essentially uh, stylist pornography about teenagers. And it's all the rage. How do we get from Mayberry and the Jeffersons to Euphoria? Nobody said, let's, let's plot this course out. Let's, I got a master plan. <laughs> you know, in, in 1957, when they're writing out the scripts for, for the Cleavers, <laughs> I know how to get from June Cleaver to Zoe Slander, whatever it is. N nobody did that. And nobody had to do that. Here's what you have to do to get from leave it to beaver to euphoria. Just ignore God. Just leave him out of the picture. Just be indifferent to him. Want the nuclear family with mom and dad and the nice job and the nice home and the nice lawn and the nice PTA and the nice um, Sunday drives. Just want all the nice stuff, but leave God out and you will get to euphoria eventually. It just, that's what happens. You can't, you can't turn from God and keep his stuff. And, and at the core of his stuff is goodness and righteousness and wholesomeness and good societies and good, strong families and good government. You can't leave him and keep that stuff. Not only does it not work naturally because he, he holds all those things, he won't let you. He won't let you.
Because it needs to be said, we should not think of this handing over as God simply letting us go our own way. That's not what this means. It's something more dreadful. It's not what one theologian, Godet, put it this way when he said, God ceased to hold the boat as it was dragged by the currents of the river. He just indifferently was just like, forget it. It's not that. It's, it's actually, it's, it's harder to understand and more dreadful than that. Doug Moo argues that the language, and I think he's absolutely right. <clears throat> I do think he's right. I should be careful as if I'm the, the Greek scholar above Doug Moo or Dave Carson or all these guys. But he argues the language is more active. It's not the word God used. It's not to describe what he did. He said, to quote him, he says, God does not simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream. Like a judge who hands over a prisoner to the punishment his crime has earned. God hands over the sinner to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. Which begs the question, how does God hand us over to the terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin and not corrupt himself? And I think there is mystery here. I just think there's mystery and we have to own that. I have looked at this, thought about this for a long time. And I've studied this, and the best I can glean from study is that it seems that maybe the best picture we can have is that God intentionally makes a decision to withdraw any and all restraining grace that might keep us from imprisoning ourselves in sin. And he does this in order that we would be consumed increasingly by our own native sinful inclinations. That's the best I can understand is that God makes an intentional decision to withhold and pull back all of his restraining graces and mercies that keep us from giving ourselves over to our own native sinful inclinations. And he does this intentionally on purpose, knowing full well what will be the consequences of his pulling away his grace and his mercy. But to be frank, I believe in the Holy Spirit that this, this perhaps, even this idea does not do enough service to God's reverence, to this reverence we should give to God's sovereignty in this. Because it means what it says, that God hands us over to these things. Like the judge handing over the prisoner to the, to the police officer after the trial. But however God does this, it must be said that he does this without ever sinning or acting in his, un, against his righteousness. This whole list is bad, but it ends with the, the worst. Like, it, like a song ends with a boom. You know, it, the ultimate corruption is so thorough in Paul's picture that by the end of this list of corruption, the people no longer even have the ability to feel shame. And not only do they not feel shame, they actually take pride in their depravity. Verse 32, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. If we just put that verse up there, Ed, just to, there it is. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Even though Paul is saying people know deep down that the sins they're committing are wrong and deserve punishment, in the same way that they suppress the truth about God, they suppress their consciences. They don't just do that though. They proudly embrace the sin and commend it to others. Theologian John Murray <clears throat> says this about verse 32. He says, and I have this up there, it is. However severe has been the apostles' delineation, that's the list naming, of the depravity of man, however severe has been the apostles' delineation of the depravity of man, he has reserved for the end the characterization which is the most damning of all. The most damning condition is not the practice of iniquity, however, much, however much that may evidence our abandonment of God and abandonment to sins, it is that together with the practice, there is also the support and the encouragement of others in the practice of the same. One of my 
most uh, colorful memories of being a, a drunkard in my teens. I hung out with guys a little bit older than me. It, they were almost like mad if I didn't drink with them at their pace. Come on, come on, man, drink up, drink up, let's go. You know, it was, they weren't satisfied to have me just in the car with them. I had to be chugging with them, getting wasted with them. Something was wrong. They itched for me to get smashed with them getting smashed. Jesus speaks of the severity with which God views encouraging others to sin. How bad this is in Matthew 18. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble, to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. So what can we take away from all this? I have one main statement with some applications, and it's this. Our core problem as a human family and our problems as believers, they are not horizontal. They are vertical. Our core problem is vertical. Our core fundamental, I'm not saying we don't have many horizontal problems. Our core problem, the root of all other problems and all other issues is vertical with God. And it goes out from there everywhere else. Our core problem is always vertical and not horizontal. I'm talking about moral, ethical, spiritual issues. And we have to get this right. We have to get this right. I mean, as believers, we have to get this right in our own lives. It will make life more joyful. It will make life more wholesome and healthy and vibrant. And we have to help our lost neighbors get this right because life will never work if they don't get this. Our core problem is between us and God before it is with anything else. And we have to get this right. Yesterday morning, I woke up with an aching hip in my right side. I often wake up with this hip right here, just achy, achy, just feeling like it's all made of stone overnight. It all turned into bricks and dry mortar. I'm 50 now. And I played sports four years in college. <clears throat> and uh, that required, that required, the sport I played required the constant rotation of my head. I, I, I rode crew and you did this a thousand times uh, an hour. You did this in a boat. You pushed off your quads and your, and your hip was rotating all the time. And I was a port rower, which means the, the weight was on my right side. So I've done something probably to this hip. And I was a runner through much of my teens, my 20s and my 30s. But here's the thing I figured out. My hip, as far as I can tell, my hip is not the issue. My hip is not the issue. My hip is a symptom. See, there's something wrong with my lower back. My discs get compressed, and that compression squeezes muscles and nerves that sends shards of pain into my hip. Many of you guys understand exactly what I'm talking about. And I could have spent a long time yesterday morning in bed trying to stretch and warm up my hip. And it might have helped a little bit, but it would not have brought the relief I needed. It would have been temporary. And it would have been short. What I needed and what I did to relieve my hip was ignore, put my hip aside for a bit and go to my lower back and just do some lower back stretches in bed to decompress my spine. And when I did that, my hip felt a lot better very quickly. In the things of God, it is crucial that we not mistake the symptoms for the actual core problem and chase after, spend all our time focused on the symptoms when the problem lies unattended. I believe America is increasingly experiencing the wrath of God and judgment. And I'm sure many of you guys believe this. And this judgment is showing up more and more and more in my 
my sense. I could be wrong, but I think it's showing up in the speed with which our, our society is becoming polarized and unable to discuss differences with each other, the way that we increasingly attack one another in, in all venues of, of social life, either online with brutal words or increasingly offline with brutal violence. I think we see God's judgment in addictions to substances that are destroying our bodies and addictions to pornography and to media that's destroying our minds and our souls. I think we see his judgment reflective in our art, in, in, in the songs we sing, in the movies we watch, in the marches we go on to glorify, that, that glorify violence and take great pride in sexual immorality and perversion. We are a nation that's always been tempted to worship at the throne of economic wealth as our God. And that disgusts God and offends him. We're a nation that's always been tempted to worship at the throne of military strength as our security. And that offends God. But now we've got leaders who not only promise such things as they always did as our saviors, but they increasingly embrace on one side, immoral ideologies and call it morality and incredible perversions. Or on the other side, increasingly they embrace with cavalier boldness, lying and demeaning and brutal words and cheating to hold on to their power. And when we think about this, when we think about where we are, our, our future, our children's future, it's scary for me. But here's a question. What do we think the answer is? What do we really think the answer is? What do we really think the answer is? Because in my mind, I have thought about what, I have really thought about what country can I go to now? What nation is still going to give some decades to my kiddos, you know? And I'm having trouble finding it. <laughs> and also, I tell you the truth, I think about our church. <laughs> and I think about my call as a pastor. And, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to run to the immigration naturalization services yet. <laughs> until I hear from God about that. Because I love you guys. You're, you're my people. My family comes first. But you are my people. You're my church family that I have to give an account to God for. So... I'm not really thinking about migrating to another nation. Just sometimes play these records in my head. Just like with pastoring, I can think about, could I sell bread? Could I go be a baker sometimes? <laughs> it's just a little fancy. I come back to God and thank him for what he's done in my life. But anyway, that's a bad tangent I wish I could undo. Yeah, but we see it. We see society getting brittle and hard and mean and brutal. Conservatives, liberals, devouring each other with words and spirits. And so what do we think the answer is? What do we really think the answer is? Because whatever you think the answer is, whatever you think the solution is, if it does not solve the real problem, it will not last, it will be deficient, and it will just lead to something worse if you don't deal with the root problem. And the root problem, Paul tells us, is not our sins against each other. It's not how awful Trump is and how awful Biden is and how awful phones are. That's not our root problem. Our real problem, Paul tells us, is the wrath of God that is being poured over the human family for rejecting God. The wrath of God for our sin of rejecting him, which hands us over to all secondary sins. By the way, this is why Paul spent all his time not on political campaigns or really important social issues, that were awful and needed help in his day. 
I'm not saying don't work on social issues. Some of you guys have vocations to work on social issues. But Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ who was given the mission to deal with the core problem, not the secondary problems. And he knew that we need someone to solve the wrath of God problem so that we are not handed over to deeper and deeper cycles of sin ending in eternal judgment. Here's, here's how this works out in the world, in the life of, uh, let's, let's use an example I've, I've talked about before, an unbeliever's porn addiction, okay? Let's use this thinking in, in the life of an unbeliever's porn addiction. The unbelieving porn addicted man, he needs to not think and say to himself simply, porn is gross, it's demeaning, it's filthy, it objectifies women and it will ruin my relationship with my wife. That is all true. It is gross. It is demeaning. It is filthy. And it will ruin his relationship with all women. But that is not what he needs to say, what he needs to know in his heart. If he wants to be truly free, he needs, by the grace of God, to come to a place where he says, I have refused to acknowledge God as my God. I have refused to acknowledge his honor and what he is due with my heart. I have refused and rejected his rightful authority over my life. And now he has handed me over to the sinful cravings of my own heart to be trapped by them. And he needs to say in his heart, if he wants to be truly free, oh God, would you forgive me for refusing you the rightful place of honor in my heart? Would you forgive me for refusing to glorify you as God and live for you as God according to your good ways that are good and wholesome and humble and kind and faithful and gentle? I need you to take your wrath from me your wrath which has handed me over to be bound to this terrible cycle of sin. Is there any way, Lord, for your wrath to be taken away from me so that I can be freed from the prison of myself? That's what he needs to see. And if you go back over what I just said he needs to see, and I don't say this to boldly proclaim because I'm so great, I'm saying this because I think it's true. I didn't mention pornography in in his whole imagined vocalization to his creator because that's a secondary issue. Because he has rejected God's right to his honor and to his thanksgiving. And when he says, is there any way that you can take your wrath away from me so that I I can be freed from this prison of myself, you and I know the answer is yes. The answer is yes. We know this. The answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ removes God's wrath so that issues like a porn addiction can begin to be healed. Jesus Christ removes God's wrath so that issues like festering bitterness can be dealt with. If they, if that man will repent to Jesus and put his faith in Jesus as the one who takes, if he will put his faith in Jesus as the one who takes all God's wrath away, as the one who paid the penalty for all of his God rejection and all of the sins that follow from God's judgment for his God rejection, then God will indeed remove his wrath from that person forever and give him the miracle of a new heart and a new spirit so that he can begin not perfectly, but truly to love God and want God not perfectly, but truly and to honor God as he should. And yes, yes, following that, the Bible and even wise doctors and counselors will tell him more about how he should live wisely and carefully and steward this gift of freedom 
as they help them walk away from addiction. And yes, new communities and new habits are crucial supports. But if the problem of God's wrath hasn't been dealt with in his addiction or in his marriage problem or in his bitterness and anger issues, then he will either be entrapped into deeper cycles of sin or he will find solutions that are temporary false refuges, which as nice as they might feel and as much more civilized as they might be than pornography, they will not save him from the final judgment to come. And so I want to ask a question though, after this, after all this, we might wonder in our hearts, can I be trapped in sin right now as a believer by the wrath of God? Can a truly saved person be trapped in sin by the wrath of God? That's the big issue. Can my struggle with sin be due to that I'm under the wrath of God as a believer in Jesus Christ? And I want to say unequivocally, I believe absolutely not. Absolutely not in a judicial judging sense and as a foretaste of the final judgment to come, which is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1. God's children are not his enemies under his wrath like the rest of mankind. God's children are not his enemies under his wrath as are the rest of mankind who he wants to save, by the way. (laughs) But, but as a father disciplines his children, so the Lord will at times allow sin and he will at times allow Satan to gain footholds in our lives. And we can start to experience an entrapment that is not completely dissimilar from the world. We start to feel and look like the world again. That is not due to God's wrath. That is due to God's fatherly discipline. And true healing and freedom begins similarly to our imagined person by acknowledging that we have put aside and again are starting to reject his lordship by acknowledging that we're spurning his love, that by seeing in our heart that we're not hoping in his promises and his honor, and we have offended and discounted and ignored him. Him. A vertical problem for us as well. And when we cry to him this way, and, re- and tell him that we've treated his grace as little and presumed on him and ignored his warnings, ignored the wisdom that we know and have given sin and Satan a territory they shouldn't have because that territory belongs to him. We gave that to him already. We're his kids already. When we cry to him this way from our hearts, he has no wrath left for us. It's not a wrath issue. He has no reason to allow us to stay in bondage when we confess our sins. So he gives us fresh forgiveness. He gives us a renewed cleansing that frees us again. And we go through this in our lives as Christians, in cycles, and we, we want those cycles to, to stop, right? We, we want to mature and, and stop getting stuck in these things. But we need his grace. We can't pride ourselves out of it. We have to run to him, just like we talked about this morning. And, and so one application here is for us as believers, Let's, let's break these cycles as much as we can by staying close to him daily, by staying close to prayer, to his word, to confession to him, to confession to one another. Let us strive to honor God and live thankful and dependent and needy, prayerful lives before him. Let's be Bible-saturated people, keeping his truth close by so the world's lies and whispers don't seduce us away because we want to keep our freedom, don't we? We want to keep our freedom from the overpowering passions and lusts that still creep in. But even if God, thank God, has taken his wrath from us, another application is that we are surrounded by a city by a workplaces, by neighbors, and even family who remain under God's wrath for their rejection of God. And if you get to know them long enough, 
and befriend them long enough, this will be evidenced in some way in their bondage to the things very much like the things on the list we read today. Bitterness, anger, sexual perversion, malice, greed. And those of us who have come to Christ, who know him, who, who have found him to be our savior, we have the answer for them. We have the answer for them. They need the answer. And yes, it belongs to him alone to give them the ears to hear and the eyes to see. We, we can't make that happen, that they would be able to receive the truth about Jesus. He has to do that. It, but it does belong to us to fight to live in such a way that they know we care about them. And that we ourselves know God and are reconciled to him to live that way before them so that, so that they might be provoked and that we'd be ready to share. Share with them words like John's. Behold, over there. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Your issues, X, Y, and Z, they're bad. But look over there. There he is. He takes away the, the wrath of God. He takes away the wrath of God so God can start to work on all these secondary issues. There he is. Go to him. He wants you. He came to heal you. And then lastly, again, let, let's make this church a real family that we can invite them to. Let's help each other experience the love of Jesus and, and be a home that we want others to be able to join and be part of because he's here. We're, we're enjoying him. We're being rescued by him. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, I just want to ask for a time of silent prayer just like we did last week. Two things. I'll put them up there, Edward. Just before we take the Lord's Supper, I'm not saying that there are at all, but if there are any sins that you're carrying on your conscience this morning, bring them to him. You can't go anywhere else with him. You're not going to be able to fix yourself and then come to him. Just bring them to him this morning and simply acknowledge from your heart, Lord, I'm not honoring you as you deserve. And I ask once again, and I'm going to have to ask again after this too, I'm asking once again for your forgiveness and your cleansing. Just humble yourself and go to him and believe him that he's, he died for that and he lives for that right now to give you that help. And then secondly, just would you bring a neighbor, a coworker, a loved one to the Lord and in this morning in your prayers, plead with him to turn his wrath away from them, to open their eyes to Jesus so that he'd become their savior and reconcile them to God forever. So let's just go to prayer for those two things. And then we'll have the Lord's Supper.